Well, when you're in that zero to one stage, what you're doing is gonna be difficult by nature. This has not been done before. So I think there's a line that you have to balance, which is here's why this thing should exist. Here's why we can make it happen. Of course, this whole thing could blow up. In fact, nine times out of 10, it will. So that's what we're getting into. But we're doing it because one, it's gonna be fun to do it anyway. And the journey is the reward of doing this. And two, it might work. That's James McGough, founder and CPO of TemperPack. TemperPack engineers and manufactures sustainable insulated packaging for the perishable food and pharmaceutical industry. In this episode, we talk about putting a dent in the universe, promising something into existence, and colliding your ideas with reality as soon as possible. I'm Maureen Taylor, and this is Think Like a Founder. I've been so looking forward to talking to you. I've heard so many great things about you. And I know you are co-founder and you're the CPO, Chief Product Officer. What made you decide to have that role? In the beginning, this was like three friends in a garage, classic kind of startup story. And we were all doing little bits of everything. So one time I was building financial models and Brian, who studied business at Warden, was running night shift, and Charles was reaching out to customers. But we, over time, sort of found our our grooves, the three of us. And Brian gravitated more towards the business side. Charles gravitated a little bit more towards the infrastructure engineering scale-up process. And what I really enjoy is the product side, which is what is the unmet market need out there? What are the perceived constraints that our customers have? What would winning look like? What are some ideas on how to make that a reality and how can we start testing that? That's really cool. And are the three of you still together? Yes, but we are all working on very different things. So, I mean, it's a big company now or, you know, much bigger than it was. So I'd say it's loosely coupled, highly aligned. <laughs> That's a nice way of putting it. And do you still like each other? Yeah, yeah, definitely. We still grab beers and talk and hang out. People say don't go into business, friends or family. But I think There is some wisdom to that because if it doesn't work, it can be really destructive. But when it does work, I think it works really, really well. And what is the secret with you and your co-founders that you still have a good relationship? I think there's probably two elements. One is trust. It's hard to get away from the fact that trust takes a lot of time to develop. Things tend to move a lot faster when you're working with people where there's a very high degree of trust when you know that the other people have your best interest and you have their best interest. So I think that's part of it. And then I would also say different spheres of focus and of decision-making really helps. That is interesting because one of the things just working with people for all these years with some tread in helping some folks, it does seem like when people get along for a while, even if they're different, even if they fight, it does come down to having similar values and respect for each other's core competency, whether it's business of life or the business of business. So that value thing is important. And then the expertise in recognizing it. Your people must love working for you. I think they love working for the company. And if they don't, we want to hear about it and we want to fix it. There's so many layers of great people that um, hopefully by now it's kind of a self-perpetuated system where it's interesting I heard a good quote, which was, as you grow in size, the likelihood 
that the average person in your company matches the average person in the country, you know, goes up. But that's kind of at odds with the fact that if you want to succeed, you can't be average. You got to be very careful about who you let into the ecosystem. And every new employee has to bring the average up. I'm not just talking about average in terms of like work output, but also cultural fit, the soft skills. When you were a kid growing up, did you know that this is where you'd end up? Not this area specifically. In fact, if you would have told me packaging, I would have said that sounds extremely boring. But I did kind of know and was kind of heavily encouraged to like go out there and try to, as, as my dad always says, put your dent in the universe, try to start something, try to create value for other people. You can't do that everywhere in the world, but here you can do it. I love that expression, go put a dent in the universe. I mean, that's such a cool way of doing it. And so from the get-go, the example you had, plus the encouragement you got was to find your purpose. Yeah. And don't worry if you don't get there too soon, just start doing stuff. Right when I could legally be able to work, I went to Starbucks and I was like, hey, can I work here? I always went there anyway. Then me and Brian or neighborhood friends, we would start, you know, raking leaves or doing mulch. We borrowed my dad's truck and we'd start doing junk removal. So pretty much anything we could do around the neighborhood, which was like our world, we would try to do. And it was really fun to make your own money. One time we were like all the vending machines in the city, let's like try to own those. We obviously didn't get there. We realized it's a big industry, but like bought a Red Bull vending machine and fixed it up and, and resold it. So having the encouragement is positive and then having a, a bunch of folks that uh, you can do things with, that was very entrepreneurial of you to figure out how to make your own money as a youngster. Now, when you got to school, what made you start to focus on packaging? I was going to study business and this is kind of funny. I, I have a lot of respect for people who study business, but at the time, my dad said something funny. He was like, the only people that go to business school are the people that don't know business. Go learn how to build something. And so uh, <laughs> I decided just, well, let me just try engineering. And um, I, at the time, I met this French Canadian girl in high school and now we're married. But I asked her, hey, where are you going to college? Because wherever you say, I'm just going to follow you there. And she was going back to school in Canada at a school called McGill in Montreal. And so I went up there and studied materials engineering because I thought it would just be interesting to learn about how do we make the materials that end up being all the stuff around us. So you went to school because of a girl that you got married to. So that's romantic. And your dad telling you to go to business school. Uh, they go to business school because they don't know how to do anything like have a business. That's hysterical. How did you get to the point where you were going to solve a problem? Like when did you know that you could connect this to something that was going to have impact. Me and Charles were in one class called heat transfer. And it was basically a physics class learning. How does heat transfer? How does a coat work in the winter? How does it keep you warm? Kind of the fundamentals of how does heat move? And we started learning about this. It was kind of like a two minute subtopic about this material called silica aerogel. And what kind of fascinated me was this material, this aerogel is extremely good at insulating, but it's like 99.99% empty space. They call it like frozen smoke. It's the lightest material on earth. And so I was like, that just seems like a really cool material. I wonder what, what someone could do with that. 
And so we started, what if we built, you know, we're thinking, what if we built scarves out of it? Or what if we built, you know, a cooler made of aerogel? Picture a cooler that you could lift up with like one finger, but it would also insulate vaccines or something like that with no power for like a month. I feel like every idea kind of starts with a little bit of a spark of like, well, wouldn't that be cool? What if we took this really high-end space age material and we brought it to maybe like a retail product or to like something within something that the World Health Organization or UNICEF could use for distributing vaccines to developing countries, something like that. So that is what kind of got the engine started on insulation and, and packaging somewhat. We quickly realized that this material is extremely hard to work with. I'm pretty sure I still have some in my lungs. It just goes everywhere. <laughs> and it's not commercially scalable, really. It's extremely expensive. So we decided, okay, that's probably not the right idea. And we we're also getting a lot of resistance trying to talk with life science and healthcare and pharma companies because we have no company, we have no employees, we have no infrastructure, we, we don't have anything. And then I remember I was in the library, I think Charles came up and he's like, have you heard of Blue Apron? And I'm like, no, what do they do? And we started researching all these companies, Blue Apron, HelloFresh, Plated, Sunbasket. They were getting like tons of venture capital around this idea of hey, everything else is online. Why can't people order groceries online? And there was nothing really like it. I mean, there's Omaha Steaks, but no one was like really going big on trying to sidestep the grocery store and do it in a way that's fresher, cheaper, using less waste. And these companies, that's what they were trying to do. But they had this big problem. They were using a bunch of styrofoam. And we knew that there was a mixed message to the consumer on a styrofoam cooler showing up with your grass-fed beef and, and organic food in there. So we started thinking, okay, maybe our company should be like, the headline is like styrofoam 2.0. You know, let's make a new, a new version. So Blue Apron, did you help them with their packaging? So when the food went to the home, it was yeah. your packaging? We actually, in the beginning, we started working with two of their competitors, Plated and HelloFresh. And at the time... We just wanted to get something going. And so the best idea we had was let's take fiberglass that we were buying from like Home Depot and Lowe's and let's wrap it in plastic so no one can actually touch it because it's kind of irritating. And let's line a cardboard box with that. And it has a couple advantages over the styrofoam cooler. One is that you can squish it down so you can get a lot more of it onto like a big truck. And then also you can brand it. You know, it's going to look better for consumers. It's easy to roll up and throw away. It'll take less room in the trash can. It wasn't a great product, but it was kind of all we could figure out at the time. That's really cool. You're very creative. So then from there till now, where are you right now? So from there, we sold, I think, a couple truckloads of that to one customer. And then we brought it to the second customer and they just shot the idea down. But it's a cool idea. Could you make it out of something compostable? And so we started learning about how fiberglass is made. You know, what's the process behind it? How does Owens Corning make a bunch of that pink stuff? It's very similar to the bedding industry. It's very similar to the filtration industry. Some of the carpet is this whole thing called non-woven. Could we give them a new type of fiber? And so we kind of looked up, okay, what are the world's biggest plant fibers? And jute, which is part of this family of uh, bast fibers like hemp and uh, sisal and stuff like that. It's used a lot in burlap. And burlap is used a lot in the coffee industry and a lot of coffee is coming into the US. So those big burlap bags that are full of coffee beans, those are made from plant fiber. We kind of had this idea of what if we can extract the plant fiber 
and make that into insulation. That way we'll have a compostable, flexible insulation blanket that we can put inside cardboard boxes. And it's a really great sustainability story. You're reusing something um, and uh, it's going to have some good consumer appeal to it. And so um, lots happened, but we figured out how to do that. Um, and then we brought that back to that customer that rejected the first idea. And thankfully, they were like really impressed. They gave us a million dollar purchase order. So you were doing what your dad told you to do. You were putting a dent in the universe. Yeah, and promising something into existence. I feel like that's a theme of entrepreneurship is making a declaration about something that's not yet, but it will be. And a lot of times all the evidence is against you, but there's never a good time to do it. Someone has to just say, let's go do it. Let's go try it. Promising into existence is different than faking it until you make it. I don't like to fake it till you make it because I, I feel like there's a negative connotation with fake it. I understand sentiment behind that, but I like a more you know positive spin on it. Promising something into existence, I think you should coin that phrase because that is as well as dent in the universe. I really like that. Instead of find your purpose. So dent, it's just such a great way of saying something very important to somebody. And before when we were talking, also mentioned the balance between ambiguity and confidence. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, when you're in that zero to one stage, what you're doing is going to be difficult by nature because it has not been done before. And there's no way of knowing if it's going to work because again, there's no comparables out there in the market really. So at the end of the day, if you say you're 100% confident, you're somewhat not telling the full truth unless you're crazy. (laughs) If you take the stance of, I'm just really not sure about anything then it's really hard to build a following and for anyone to want to take that risk with you. So I think there's a line that you have to balance, which is here's why this thing should exist. Here's why we can make it happen. Of course, this whole thing could blow up. In fact, nine times out of 10, it will. So that's what we're getting into. But we're doing it because one, it's going to be fun to do it anyway. And the journey is the reward of doing this. And two, it might work. And it is a balance. It's always a balance. How many employees do you have right now? We have about 700. What is your culture? I think culture is an emergent property. It's hard to really set it. I think it's set very early on and it's very sticky and it changes you know, a little bit over time. But I think we have a culture of working really hard, trying to do something twice as good with half the budget, very people-centric. It sounds cheesy, but I think we're extremely like collaborative very low ego. I'd say the most important thing is very market oriented. So we try not to to drink our own Kool-Aid too much. And anytime we're having a conversation, it's helpful to think if the customer was in the room, what would they say about this? What are your values? So we have four values and we have shoot for the moon and land there. So try very audacious things and make them happen. <laughs> and then uh, do it together. It's hard to do anything really big or really great alone. So there's, there's tremendous value in the team. And then love the process because if you just are waiting for the reward or the finish line, or, or you're just going to go crazy. I mean, things are going to go wrong and it has to be fun to play the game. The game is why we're here, not just to win, but just to keep playing. The fourth one I just did remember just for your info is um, be the most respected. So try to set the standard as far as what our industry puts out into the world. When you were a kid, 
aside from put a dent in the universe, if there was something that just sticks in your head when I ask this question, like really good advice, it could be from a stranger or a teacher or a friend or something like that, that you know how every now and then in your life, someone says something you never forget. What is it that pops to your head that you remember? Not verbatim, but the idea, we all just made this up. There's no reason that you can't make it up to. And I think it's like there a lot of people are, are, they don't know that they can think that way maybe, or the more subtle things is it's actually a lot of pressure to think that way. Because once you realize that, hey, there's no excuses really, then it's like, oh man, you know, now I have to dream big. I think that that's kind of a curse sometimes of founders is, is the awareness that it all is made up. And so it's kind of your job to make up something really, really good. And if you, that 12-year-old that's sitting there listening because they already are on kind of a mindset that they want to put a dent in the universe, what is your advice to that kid? I think first I would say, you know, try to sell it to someone as soon as possible. My dad always told us, you know, get on the court as soon as possible because planning is really fun and thinking is really fun and analyzing and building business plans. What's not fun is rejection. <laughs> and you got to, you know, as I think it was the founder of Netflix, you got to collide your ideas with reality as soon as possible because that's the data rich part of it. So even if you don't have it yet, even if it's just an idea, try to sell it to someone. Once you hear why they wouldn't buy it, that should be the next thing that you try to go solve. Actually be empathetic with the person and who's telling you no to figure out how to solve the problem. That makes really good sense. What do you want to be when you grow up? Well, I like the idea of putting out stuff into the world that is improving people's lives and generating value. And value is kind of an interesting topic for me because it's such a empty word usually. But to me, it's really cool the idea of taking inputs in that cost you a certain amount of money, doing something to them, which also costs you money, and then being able to sell them in the market for more than the sum of those parts for someone that is happy to pay that much. And the difference there was actual, real, tangible, lasting value that you created. Tell us about building a team and especially people listening that might be smaller than where you are. Give some advice. I don't know that I have any great advice, but I'll tell you what I think worked so far for us. I think um, clarity around what are we trying to accomplish together? Why is it important? Why do we need to be doing all this? How does it improve the world? How does it improve lives for our customers? And then like authenticity around, we're not robots. We're all people. We're all choosing to wake up and brush our teeth and get our coffee and meet here and do emails. And let's just be you know authentic with each other. Let's be very protective of this thing that we've built. A good team should be an emerging property of a, a good group of people getting together to go do something that's highly defined and something that they're capable of doing. Having fun uh, in work, being able to take the hard knocks with the same kind of attitude towards things being easy. You talked about fun and failure. Give us your thoughts on that. It's easy to fall into this mindset of like, oh, this is life or death and this is really important. And, and you put all these layers of pressure on yourself. So I think you need some mental tools to, to take those layers off. And the one I use is we're all going to be dead in about 4,000 weeks. That's the average lifespan. And so in the grand scheme of space and time, like none of this really matters that much. 
So our job is to like, this should be fun. This should be something that we enjoy doing. And don't worry because what's the worst that could happen? I feel blessed to live in a country where we can even try to start a company. If everything went bad, you know, just go find a job somewhere. You know, we'll be fine. For me, it's not life or death. It's a game. It's fun to be on a team that's competing and, and doing their best on the playing field, whichever one you choose to compete on. You don't want to win all the time. It gets a little boring. You want competition that's going to sharpen you. You know, again, my dad always said metal sharpens metal. And every once in a while, we'll, we'll see something come into our space that we're like, uh-oh, this is good, you know? And honestly, that supercharges the team. We think more clearly. We stay later. We work harder. And the game just becomes even more fun. I think that the goal is to win and is create value, but you also just need to make sure that you're having fun That was James McGough, founder and CPO of TemperPack. TemperPack is a sustainable materials company that wants to eliminate plastic from the supply chain. You can learn more at TemperPack.com. I'm Maureen Taylor. Thanks for listening. Series producer is Mike Sullivan. Sound design by Mark Reem. Content and scripting by Jacelyn Drown and Catherine Hardy. Production coordinator is Natasha Thomas. Thanks also to Selena Persiani-Shell, John Hughes, and Ren Barrett.